From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Wednesday, November 8th. When Anthony Albanese visited Beijing over the weekend, it was a victory lap, according to some commentators. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has touched down in China as he embarks on a mission to stabilise ties with Australia's biggest trade partner. Hope now growing that the final restrictions on Australian goods will be lifted, re-establishing billions of dollars of trade and with it, new jobs here. This was the first visit from an Australian Prime Minister to China in seven years. And it marked an end of nearly a generation of China's multi-pronged attempts to dominate Australia. But have we been lulled into a false sense of security by Albanese's so-called victory lap? Are we still too reliant on China? Today, international and political editor Peter Harcher on the ominous warning our leaders once ignored, to their detriment, and whether Australia has learned the lessons from its past. So, Peter, I was fascinated to read in your latest column that nearly two decades ago, a Chinese diplomat revealed a secret plan that the Chinese Communist Party had already put into action in Australia. So who was this diplomat and Mm. what did he actually say? Yes, it's a really interesting marker point because it tells us where the campaign to essentially win control, win sway over Australia began nearly 20 years ago. And this guy was the one who blew the whistle. Chen Yonglin was his name. Chen was the first secretary political at the Chinese consulate in Sydney. He was a rising star of the Chinese diplomatic service. After four years in Australia, he'd been promoted to first secretary. Chen Yonglin was very good at his job, a job that included spying and informing on Chinese Australians. And he defected to Australia. He gave interviews eventually and talked openly about what was going on and what he'd learned in his job. And he said there'd been a high-level decision, and this is 2005, there'd been a high-level decision in Beijing to wage a systematic infiltration of Australia to essentially win control of its decision-making processes. What they did, everything. So you, Information you would go along be, to yes, the Yes, uh, and we, yeah, we, uh, the, what, like me uh, to report back to, to China for their information so that they take uh, some strategy or, or measures against this group. And the reason he gave, the logic was that Australia was seen as the weak link in the Western chain. And so they were going to try and break the link. The intention was to break Australia away from the US alliance, turn it from a US ally into a Chinese plaything. What was happening here, the effects were these. The infiltration campaign involved using the United Front mechanisms, which are an official part of the Chinese Communist Party, but not a part of the formal government. So uh, using agents of the United Front Work Department uh, to infiltrate uh, communities, the Chinese diaspora here, to work with Australian business people. Beijing sent wealthy Chinese business people to live in Australia, and they were there to establish political contacts, to support politicians with money donations and political support and mustering crowds for their events and donors for their campaigns, putting uh, politicians and former politicians on, on their boards, creating ecosystems of influence. And it was a very inconvenient message, so inconvenient, that when he signalled 
to Australia that he wanted to defect. Uh, he had a meeting where staff from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs tried to persuade him not to defect because they didn't want it to potentially upset the relationship with China, which they valued more than just about anything. And that tells you a lot about the Australian mentality at that moment, 2005. And notably, you've written that our leaders here who knew about it didn't heed the warning. So why didn't they heed the warning? Yeah, so what that tells us is that we had a a clear sign. Of course, there was lots more information went to uh, the intelligence community from him, but also from others. There were other uh, defectors after him as well, by the way, uh, who reinforced the point. And there were many other signals. Um, It went to senior officials and, of course, to ministers in relevant departments and prime ministers for years. And they didn't want, they didn't heed the message because they didn't want to heed the message. So that time, 2004-05, was so-called first China boom for the Australian economy where exports were just going gangbusters, just going through the roof. We hadn't seen anything like it since the Japanese takeoff in the 1960s in terms of just sucking out so many resources, uh, services, products from Australia. Uh, nobody wanted to risk that by you know, bringing on a stoush with China. So it went very quiet. Nobody spoke about it. The intelligence services kept warning uh, our ministers and prime ministers of what was going on, and they would sometimes take major companies aside and brief them in in private, in secret, uh, that they were in the process of either being hacked into or infiltrated somehow or another, or their negotiations in Beijing were being listened to, all that sort of stuff. But it all went on below the radar. There was no public criticism and no acknowledgement and no move uh, beyond that to, to actively defend Australia against what they knew was already underway. I mean, hearing it from the standpoint now, this sounds really shocking to me, but what was the result? How did this actually change things here? Well, it did a bunch of things, but the detail, the mechanism and the full effect only became obvious uh, later when it was forced upon Malcolm Turnbull to be the prime minister to call a halt to it. And I mean, credit to Turnbull, he did have the option. He could have just pretended it away as as other leaders, Justin Trudeau, for example, in Canada, did for years, just pushed it. No, it's not a problem. Even as recently as, well, even a few weeks ago, the Canadian prime minister was still pushing it under the rug and hoping not to have to act on it. Consequence in Canada was that the Chinese Communist Party sponsored 11 members of parliament in the last election, last national election in Canada. We saw the results when the whistle was blown, which was courtesy of uh, a senator called Sam Dastyari that you might remember. Senator Sam Dastyari's links with Chinese donors are making headlines again. Whose side is he on? With sensational reports that he personally warned a billionaire benefactor, Huang Zhangmo, that his phone was being tapped by intelligence agencies. Is he on the side of the agencies that keep us safe? Or is he on the side of a foreign government? When it was revealed he was in the pay of a Chinese billionaire who'd taken up residency in Australia, Huang Jimo was his name, and that he had been changing policy, stated labour policy and national policy, in return for funding from this Chinese billionaire. Now, when that all blew up, Sam Dastyari was eventually drummed out of parliament. The billionaire, Huang Jimo, was eventually declared persona non grata and his visa cancelled. The tax office requisitioned his uh, assets to for unpaid taxes. The whole thing 
just exposed the mechanisms of how Chinese influence was infiltrating Australia and how it was succeeding. And the most shocking thing of all was that Sam Dastyari had done nothing wrong. Everything he did was within the law. And it just revealed that Australia was wide open and the Chinese campaign was working. We'll be right back. And so you also mentioned in your column that by the time COVID struck in 2019, China was buying 38% of all Australian exports, which is massive. And so I wanted to ask you about, you know, with Sam Dastyari and how easily our politicians could be bought, which I guess is what that exposed. Mm, yeah. Was the end game for China there to somehow influence our politicians to put in legislation that would benefit the country? Uh, yes. I'd make two points. One is we have the word of a former national security advisor of Australia that uh, Duncan Lewis told me in an interview. He said the idea from Beijing was to take over Australia and pull strings from offshore to operate it as a puppet state effectively without having you know the, the bother, expense and drama of physical occupation. Why would you need to if you can control the political class through influence? It's brilliant, uh, right? I mean, all of Xi Jinping's strategic strategies have an element of brilliance to them, and he's been highly effective. And this was in the process of, of working until Sam Dastyari effectively blew the whistle on them with the help of the Australian media. And I must add that the Sydney Morning Herald and our reporter, Latika Burke, were instrumental in pulling all of that uh, apart. The other way we can tell what China's ultimate aim was, was the list of 14 demands that they handed over. Uh, remember, as the Chinese Communist Party was imposing the trade bans, arresting Australian citizens to use them as political hostages in Beijing, harassing the Australian Air Force and Navy in dangerous encounters, all of that was going on. And at the same time, two Chinese diplomats from their embassy in Canberra met a nine TV reporter and handed him a list of 14 demands. And so those demands started with number one, uh, that Australian foreign investment rules were too strict and had to open up to Chinese investment. Number two, Australia had to reverse its ban on Huawei, the telecommunications carrier. So this tells you about the sort of priorities they wanted to invest. They wanted to control telecommunications. They wanted to invest wherever they chose. Uh, MPs had to stop criticizing China. Members of parliament and the government had to stop criticizing China and show respect. 14 all the way down. And the 14th uh, was to stop the Australian media criticizing China. And what year was were those demands issued? It would have been, I can't be exact, but I'm from memory guessing it was 2020. Oh, very recently. Yeah, it was recent as these trade bans were coming into place. So here's the coercion. Here are the demands. You work it out. This isn't the first time that we've been overly reliant on another country for trade and when it sort of ended badly. So can you tell me about that other occasion? Those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, right? Fated to repeat it. In the 1950s and 60s, Australia made exactly the same mistake. Too many eggs in one basket. Dramatic over-reliance on Britain. And we thought, oh, it's, it's the Palms, it's the motherland, that's going to be okay. Well, of course it wasn't because in 1973... Britain joined the European common market and dumped all of Australia's trade preferences. But we didn't, and we persisted within the economic realm. Political shock, but also economic shock. 
Australian agriculture felt the pain hardest. A lot of farmers uh, were sent broke off the land, horticulturalists. It was very dramatic for Australia. Ultimately, it was good because it forced Australian exporters to reorient to Asia, and that, of course, ended up being to our benefit. But we just forgot that lesson of history and did it all over again with China. And as you say, four out of every $10 in Australian exports was going to China, and we thought that was, that was just great and could only get better. Which brings us to Anthony Albanese's recent visit to China, of course, over the weekend, first time in seven years that an Australian prime minister has visited the country. And I've heard you say that it was something of a victory lap. This marked the end of a generation of coercion on China's part. And like you've written in your column, it isn't just Anthony Albanese that stood up to Xi Jinping. It's also Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. So has all of this changed our standing on the global stage in terms of how other superpowers are viewing us? Yeah, absolutely. It has. It's been seen as a model for other countries in how to resist Chinese coercion because then, of course, they don't just do it to us. They do it to, they're doing it to Japan right now and a bunch of, a bunch of countries. But it's given uh, encouragement to countries. It's shown that you can withstand Chinese coercion. And the other lesson I would offer is that it's not just you know, bracing and, and against the storm and huddling and waiting for it to pass – the critical thing that Australia did here was not just resist, not just copying it, but building its own strength in response, strengthening Australia. And that's what all those prime ministers did one way or another, uh, including, of course, toughening against uh, the Chinese strategic and military system with creating the AUKUS agreement, which was Morrison's own initiative, joining the Quad summits, which was a US escalation of existing mechanism, the Quad, tightening relationships with Japan, with India, with a bunch of Southeast Asian countries, including the Philippines, and really importantly, putting a big diplomatic effort into our forgotten strategic hinterland, otherwise known as the South Pacific Islands. So all of these things actually strengthened Australia's position. And this is the critical lesson. Every kid in every schoolyard knows this, Samantha, right? What do you do when a bully is bullying you in the schoolyard? You don't give in. The only solution, if you want the problem to be solved, is to stand up. Okay, but as you've written, I think it's still 30% of our exports go to China. So I'm just wondering, is that too much trade interest still with China? Should we be diversifying our economy even more to protect ourselves? Yes. Um, yes, we should. Partly because it's simply imprudent to have, you know, almost a third of your exports still going to one customer. There are other countries in the world. But second, because although we are in a, a moment of sunshine uh, now diplomatically with China, we know that it can't last. So the government talks about stabilizing the relationship, which is wise rather than talking about, you know, a new dawn or return to or normalization or anything like that, because we're not going back. And uh, we should learn from the experience that we and other countries uh, have just had. The metaphor I use for this, Samantha, is that the relationship is stabilized on top of a volcano, a live volcano. And it might sit there and everything might be smooth for a long time, but eventually one day it's going to blow and spectacularly. So here's the thing. The Chinese system has complained for years bitterly, ever since AUKUS was first proposed, about what a terrible thing it is, how we're just lackeys to the Americans and this is pr promoting war and all this stuff. What are they doing with their military? Well, of course, they are continuing their breakneck expansion and what are they doing about nuclear-powered submarines? 
well, uh, not only have they got an existing fleet and more submarines in the water already than the Americans have, they are building the next generation of submarines called Class 96, which is going to be a new generation of stealthy submarines in the water. First is expected around the same time that we're supposed to get the Virginia-class subs from the Americans. But of course, unlike those, ours will be nuclear-powered but not armed. The Chinese ones will be a new generation of stealthiness, nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed. So we would be very foolish to say, oh, everything's smooth. Let's just back off on AUKUS. We won't need those subs. Trade's going to be cool. Xi Jinping is bracing his country for generations of confrontation and, to use his favorite word, struggle with the U.S., and as much of the world as needs to be subdued and controlled. And we would be very foolish to lose sight of this overarching message because of five minutes of sunshine. For the first time, really, in our history, we have to take control of our own destiny. We don't want to. We'd rather let someone else do it. But we've got to stick with it because otherwise someone will take control of it for us and we won't enjoy that. And so as a last question to wrap up, are there other measures that you think Anthony Albanese should put into place to protect ourselves from being dominated by China or even another country, Hmm. uh, perhaps toughening our laws against foreign interference? Yes. Yes, absolutely. The first thing I'd say, though, is Chinese-Australian population. It's uh, about 5% of our country, uh, 1.4 million people, Australian citizens, everyone, a vital and very welcome addition to our country, they are the primary target of the Chinese Communist Party to try to to win their sympathies and uh, get them to operate uh, according to China's wishes, not Australia's. We need to let them know much more than we have so far that we value them, embrace them, and will protect them from the Chinese Communist Party interference. That's the first thing. Uh, that's a very important equity we need to protect, and it's our own population, it's our own harmony. So that's critical. Then, yes, so official mechanisms like the foreign interference register that Malcolm Turnbull created has been allowed to fall by the wayside. Uh, Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says that the government is having a fresh look at the foreign interference register, which is a good idea. All it is, it's a public thing. Go on the Attorney General's Department website. It's there in public. If you're doing work for a foreign government, you have to list yourself whether you're working for an American board of an American corporation or the French or whatever. A lot of known Chinese Communist Party-related entities have not listed themselves. The penalty is large, up to five years jail. It's not being enforced, and that's just giving imprimatur to the United Front Work Department and the Chinese system in general to uh, operate as they please. The Foreign Interference Register, if it's working properly, would have stopped uh, a Huang Jimou-type billionaire giving money to influence a member of parliament. But a Sam Dassiari figure today could still do the same thing legally because uh, our political donation laws are wide open. Now, this government says it's going to reform those and it's proposing to bring uh, changes to the parliament by the end of this year. So they are obviously desperately needed, not just to prevent against Chinese Communist Party interference, but all sorts of other unseemly, undue and hidden political influences on our parliament. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time. Always a pleasure, Samantha. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Chi Wong. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. 
If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search the age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.